Hello, I'm Matthew Burrett. And I'm Taylor Romans, and this is Hard Beeswax, Experiences in Waldorf Education. Welcome to Episode 5 of Hard Beeswax. Today, we have the opportunity to speak with a classmate of mine, Zach Caputo, an independent filmmaker and graduate of the Austin Waldorf School Class of 2010. We are individuals who are part of this global educational movement, and we want to be clear that we are only speaking from our own experiences and from our own impressions. We do not presume to speak for the Waldorf movement as a whole. Zach, thank you so much for being with us today. It's great to see you. How's it going? Good. It's great to be seen. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) So, Zach, I, you know, on this podcast, we're talking to Waldorf teachers and Waldorf alumni from various places. And you're actually the first alumni that we're interviewing. So um, thanks for bearing with us. And, you know, when I was thinking about who is someone who is easy to talk to, a great storyteller, just genuinely funny, I thought, oh, my God, my boy Caputo is perfect for this. So um, that is uh, it's extremely flattering. Thank you, Taylor. <laughs> you're very welcome. So, uh, Zach, we want to maybe start with your transition going from elementary school in a Montessori school. Then it was in seventh grade when you first came to Waldorf, right? That's correct. So what was that transition like? What were some of the big differences that you noticed? What were your first impressions? Wherever you want to go with that question is fine. Yeah, um, this is something that I've actually thought about a lot and talked about a lot with with other people who have asked me about my early education. Um, I think one thing to keep in mind for me and my transition from Montessori to Waldorf, it might not be the same as others or it might not have been quite as stark or as noticeable as others in a similar transition simply because I had moved around Montessori schools a lot. Mm-hmm. So I was in one Montessori school first through third grade, a different Montessori school for fifth for fourth grade, a different for fifth grade, a different for sixth grade. So wow. I was really moving around a lot and shuffling around schools a lot. And each school that I had attended among those were all very different when it came to their approach to the Montessori education. Totally. Okay. So moving to the Waldorf system in seventh grade, I think maybe perhaps wasn't quite as a big jump just because I was kind of used to moving to different schools. Um, That being said, it is still very different. Obviously the Montessori education and the Waldorf education are very different. Um, I think there are a a number of differences, obviously that, that struck me Um, perhaps first and foremost, all of the kind of stereotypically weird things that come with <laughs> Waldorf education, uh, certainly a pre-high school Waldorf education. Totally. Um, the one that stands out the most, I think, which you guys probably get a lot, is you're with me. Indeed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yep. That is the classic, uh, <laughs> what the heck is this kind of thing. Um, yeah, so that was, that was interesting. I was pretty used to having the same class teacher, Mm -hmm. you know, throughout different grades. So while that is unique to Waldorf in some ways, that was something that I was used to. Um, And then really the emphasis on the arts was something else that 
struck me as being uniquely Waldorf, um, not just visual arts, but also music as well. Um, those were kind of things that all kind of immediately upon my seventh grade brain impressed themselves as uh, standouts, I suppose. And, and what instrument did you play? You know, it's it's funny. I kind of cycled through a couple in <laughs> trying to figure out what I wanted. Um, I think the first instrument that I tried was clarinet. Um, I remember that. <laughs> I realized pretty quickly that that wasn't the instrument for me. How does uh, one realize? <laughs> yeah. How does one realize uh, that the clarinet is not the instrument for them? <laughs> uh, it was the tight armature. You know, I, I didn't quite have that kind of uh, uh, mouth <laughs> that you need for the clarinet. Um, so I switched to uh, saxophone. I think first I tried tenor sax, similar armature. So that was kind of out of the question as well. And then jumped. I did like the saxophone, though. So I moved to baritone saxophone. And that's where I really hit my stride with a much looser armature and a little more, uh, you know, it's a little friendlier for my for my mouthfeel, if you will. Uh, I've never I've never heard it described so eloquently. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so a big part, right, when you are. I mean, maybe now it's different, but I know that when I was growing up, uh, I wasn't making a lot of those big life decisions for myself. A lot of times they were fueled by my parents, right? Their research, their decisions. Do you remember, you know, in those, like the months leading up to going to the Waldorf school, leading up to that decision, what do you remember your parents' kind of impressions of what they were coming into in sending you and Camille to the Waldorf school? I, I remember a lot about that, actually. Um, I should preface this by letting people know that Camille is my twin sister. Yes, thank uh, you. Thank and, you. And the, the both of us, you know, first grade through 12th grade, we're always in the same class. Mm -hmm. um, we were together for all of our formative years, which I think was wonderful, to be honest. Um, yeah, leading up to that decision, I, I remember distinctly one of the reasons why we had moved to a different Montessori school for fifth grade was that we wanted to follow the class teacher that we had who was moving. Mm -hmm. uh, we absolutely adored this woman. Her name was Glenda Livingston. Shout out to Glenda. Um, she was the best. And so she and her family were moving back to Canada where they're from after that. So we kind of had shuffled around and tried to figure out where do we want to go? You know, my parents, to their credit, really wanted to make sure that we were involved in our choice of where we were continuing our education. So sixth grade, you know, we had moved to this, this different kind of Montessori adjacent. It was almost like a Montessori slash Quaker school, hmm. friend school, almost, where it was steeped in the Montessori tradition. But, you know, we had Quaker meeting every Friday and it was very community based. Beautiful. Um, and then moving to seventh grade, they we had explored a couple different options. Um, one of which was a magnet school in Austin. Mm -hmm. uh, we visited and did like a whole kind of three day visit trial thing. Uh, and the other was the Waldorf school. And I think part of the allure for us was that we did know a couple people who were already enrolled there. Um, 
And that was kind of the driving force for Camille and I. Yeah. Uh, especially after we visited, you know, we, Waldorf as well does kind of this visit trial period, or at least mm-hmm. the Austin School did. I imagine that it's similar um, across the nation. But, you know, after visiting in sixth grade, our visit was was pretty, pretty funny, as I recall. <laughs> um, you guys at the time were in rehearsal for play. For Robin Hood. It was Robin Hood, yeah. <laughs> and so a big part of our visit was watching a lot of you running around in tights and uh, practicing your staff fighting uh, for the stage, um, which was interesting, a, a part of, but also not, not a part of. Uh, you know, but at the same time, there were folks, like I said, I knew uh, Sean Kent was already enrolled. Oh, yeah. And Sean and I had been really good friends, and we had been in school together for a long time. So I knew Sean. Um, and, yeah, you know, I think a lot of that decision really came down to my parents saying, you know, you guys get to pick. Where yeah. do you want to go? Do you want to go to this magnet school? Do you want to go to the Waller school? Or do you want to explore a public school option? And the fact that we knew someone at the Austin Waller School combined with the fact that it felt familiar in terms of the small class size, uh, you know, a close-knit community, that kind of ended up drawing Camille and I to making the decision to attending Waldorf. Was there any particular main lesson blocks that you remember from your middle school years? Uh, During that visit or just in general? I mean, in general. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know... I have always found myself a stronger student in the humanities. And I think that in middle school, especially some of the, some of the history classes I loved. Um, uh, oh man, I think I'm trying to remember what our, it was Taylor, maybe you can jog my memory. Okay. I want to say it was some sort of poetry block that we had. Was it called Wish, Wonder and Surprise? That's what I had. In eighth grade? Yeah. I think it was seventh grade, Wish, Wonder, and Surprise. I don't think we had Wish, Wonder, and Surprise, but I do remember poetry. Wish, Wonder, and Surprise is not ringing a bell. No. It sounds, I mean, it's the least <laughs> sounds pretty surprising great. name for a main lesson block that I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's probably something similar to that. And that, that really stood out to me as well. Yeah, didn't we do... I mean, I, I even remember just imitating poet... Yes, poetic forms like doing um, sonnets, like a sonnet. And yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah, exactly. yeah. I know we had something like that in high school as with well, Miss V. With Miss V, but there was something. Yeah, I want to say it was seventh grade mm-hmm. that uh, really, really tickled my fancy, so to speak. So earlier, you mentioned, you know, coming into a small, tight knit community, and. You know, the the Waldorf class, it's so interesting that there's such a huge range in, like, the character of a Waldorf class. Like, at, as high school teachers, we always watch the classes coming up and are like, oh, boy, this is a weird one. Or like, whoa, what a kind of strong group. Or there are some classes that are really big and some that are small, some that are very fractured, some that are unified. You know, could you talk a little bit about your kind of impression of coming into a group that was in many ways, pretty established by seventh grade. And what was your experience coming into just the 
the tight Waldorf class family soup. Yeah, that, that was that was a weird one for sure. You know, speaking for myself and not for my sister, I in in later life I have always found it very easy to kind of break into any social setting. I am a pretty social guy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, you know, I'm very blessed in that it has been very easy for me to make friends in most situations. Um, I wasn't always this way, particularly <laughs> in middle school. <laughs> and so that was a very daunting aspect of starting at the Austin Waldorf School. Most most of y'all had known each other since kindergarten. Yep. And kind of had this very well-established rapport, these very well-established cliques. You know, the social dynamic of our class was a decade old almost at that point, yeah. right? So for me, personally, that was a pretty unique challenge. I think it it took me probably the better part of seventh and eighth grade to find my place within this class. Your your Not set of tights. <laughs> yeah. What's that? Your set of tights. And, and your exactly, staff. Find, find my staff, my bow, and my set of tights. Um, yeah, that I I remember distinctly that being kind of. Not an issue, but being a unique challenge to face. Completely. Um, That isn't to say that, you know, our class wasn't welcoming because I think by and large it was. Um, But I think also the class was, um, our class was rightfully wary of, especially at that age of letting (laughs) outsiders in and kind of, you know, perhaps seeing themselves and seeing themselves within the world system through fresh eyes that hadn't experienced this kind of education before. So, yeah, I mean, after, obviously after a couple of years, I really found my, found my lane, so to speak, um, or that it, it, it wasn't necessarily easy. Mm -hmm. So, um, you're with me just, just the, the floor is open to discuss you're with me. What were your, what was your impression of Eurythmy? Um, my impression of Eurythmy, especially in seventh and eighth grade, given the nature of our class, <laughs> seemed like a good excuse to stage this sort of sit-in protest of <laughs> Yes! <Eurythmy>. Yes! <laughs> and it really was almost like an introduction to social justice. <laughs> um, I... Remember very distinctly one of my first rhythmic classes. I don't know if it was the first rhythmic class. One of my first rhythmic classes having this overwhelming sympathy for the teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, given the way that the class was behaving uh, for the most part, um, that was my introduction to rhythmic, was I think standing. On the boardwalk. Oh. Actually, first, first, my introduction to you with me was everybody hiding around <laughs> somewhere outside around the classroom as our teacher arrived uh, and loudly cackling when she started calling our names and trying to figure out where we were. Uh, and after that, sort of organizing this unified chant about not being with me 
and having recess instead. <laughs> so that was an early introduction to Eurythmy for me. It's so um, it's so weird because like on the other side of it, I can see the net positives of Eurythmy and I can have a real appreciation for Eurythmy, but I don't know of any middle schooler who doesn't make their Eurythmy teacher's life as miserable as possible. I'm like, is that is that part of Eurythmy? Is that is that a necessary part of being a Eurythmy teacher that in training they like they prepare you like for three years, you will go to war with your students every day, armed only with a copper rod and silk scarves. So you better be tough. Right. Yeah. Like, but I mean, it is very in. I mean, when I think about it, I think, yes, it does make sense. You know, it's a tough age group to corral in general, 30, yeah. 12, 13, 14 year olds. Um, they're going to do what they want to do. Yeah. Right. And most of the time that isn't your rhythm. No, it's, <laughs> it's not, it's not, <laughs> it's, it's not. And you know, yes, on, on this side of it, I, I can absolutely, like you said, Taylor, I can recognize a lot of the benefits of your rhythm. Um, it obviously it is impossible to imagine a 13 year old recognizing those things. Yeah. Um, it's just not even developmentally possible for a 13 year old <laughs> to recognize the bigger picture of that. It's not. And even, you know, even when we weren't staging these kind of tantrum protests in seventh and eighth grade, a lot of my thoughts are, okay, what the hell are we doing here? Like, yeah. Why am I throwing a rod back and forth? Right. What exactly does this have to do with my education? What does this mm -hmm. have to do with my development as a pre-adolescent, you know, maybe not in such kind of particularly academic terms, but I certainly remember thinking to myself, what the hell are you doing here? Yeah. What is going on? Yeah. Did, did anybody explain it to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, mostly teachers at the Waldorf school. I don't think any students or my parents were equipped to explain it to me, Yeah. but <laughs> right. our teachers for sure explained you're with me to me in no uncertain terms. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So coming through, coming through middle school, I think for any, so many Waldorf schools end in eighth grade, right? That there's kind of this culmination class teacher first through eighth. And then that part of the journey is done. And I think for most people, there's a really big question. If, even if there is a high, a Waldorf high school available of, are we going to continue on in a Waldorf high school, or are you going to go out and seek maybe a more traditional public school, a magnet school, an IB program, right? All these different versions of a high school education. Could you go into, first of all, was it a question for you about whether or not you were going to go on and continue your Waldorf education at the high school? And what went into that decision? What were the kind of questions you were <clears throat> exploring as you were trying to figure that out? It certainly was a question for me. Um, I think a, a couple things went into that. One, the, the primary question being, do I want to just experience something different uh, for high school and kind of see what other types of education I can experience before I go into my higher education? That was certainly one question. Um, another question, which in retrospect, I am lucky that I didn't necessarily have to face because my parents faced it for me, uh, was the financial aspect totally. of Waldorf High School. Um, I 
don't come from a particularly wealthy family. I am very fortunate that my grandmother actually paid for my high school education. Um, so I think that was certainly a question, but not necessarily one that was made as evident to me as it could have been, which is, I feel very fortunate for. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were kind of the two, the two main questions that I was facing, whether I knew it or not. Um, and at the end of the day, I think it was just easier for me to stay in Waldorf for high school. It was, mm-hmm. you know, failure versus the unknown. I knew at that point, at least was friends with most of our classmates and knew them. So it was, it was easy enough for me to say, okay, you know what, this is the path of least resistance. Yeah. Let's just stay through 12th grade and see this thing through. And I think there was definitely a momentum switch within the class that about by midway through the year, almost everyone had decided to stay, right? That, you know, at the beginning of eighth grade, I think there was always a bubbling of like, oh yeah, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And then by the end, it seemed like the overwhelming majority was deciding to stay, right? And so that group being kept together. Yeah. Nice. So then going into high school, right? I think that you know, kind of like I said earlier, for so many people who got a Waldorf education, there wasn't a Waldorf high school available. So, I mean, even now, how many high schools are there? About 40 or so. Yeah. So like only 40. Right. Wow. Still only 40. Yeah. Yeah. So, is that in the U.S. or is that? In the U.S. Uh, okay. I think it's a little bit more if you include Canada as well. Yeah. And Mexico. Is there a high school in Mexico? I do not think there's a high school in Mexico yet. Okay. Yeah. Are there any Waldorf high schools in Europe? Tons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, the Waldorf school where you went in Germany, it was huge. Yeah, it was triple tracked. It was over a thousand students. And now it's just one. I think in, in Germany, there's two 2,000 Waldorf schools or so with, with high schools. It's about the same amount in the Netherlands. And a huge amount of Waldorf high schools now in China. The Waldorf movement is really growing there, is what I've heard. No, I think there's like one or two with high schools, but a lot. There's, yeah. Yeah, so... It's out there. It's, cool. We're kind of in our bubble. <laughs> and, and you know, Zach and I, we were at school, at a Waldorf school in Austin, which if you know anything about the geography of the United States, um, Texas is very large. It takes a long time to get out of Texas. What we missed out on that so many other people in different parts of the country experience is connection with other Waldorf schools, yeah, right? That's what I remember for sure. Yeah. Like Matthew talks, you know, has experiences of like his pentathlon being with other Waldorf fifth grades. And we'd have basketball awesome. tournaments and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine how validating it would be to like, you know, play another team who isn't like, hey, it's the weird beanbag people, you know? <laughs> I, I can't imagine that. <laughs> that honestly sounds really, really fascinating. I, I do wish that we had been able to experience that. Yeah, me too. Me too. When I was when I was coaching up here, my dream was to to try and figure out a way for the Santa Fe team to go down to Austin to play. I was like, I was going to figure it out, but... On to other dreams, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so then what, what was your impression of Waldorf High School, especially as a transition from the middle school class teacher model? What were some of the biggest differences that you noticed and what was your impression of the high school? That's a great question. I think that this sort of ties into perhaps one of the biggest criticisms that I've heard of the Waldorf education system, which is that there isn't really an emphasis placed on 
higher academics for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did not find that to be the case at our high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, you know, while certainly there, there may be some validity to that criticism when it comes to the lower elementary grades, one thing that kind of has flipped that criticism is that it, it takes less time for Waldorf students to catch up with mm-hmm. their educational ca- counterparts once they kind of start beginning to learn some of the subjects that maybe they didn't come to until a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, and I found that the high school was very stimulating academically. Um, you know, that is different for everyone. Obviously, I'm just speaking to my experience. Um, but it it certainly did feel like a step up. And it did feel kind of like we started to shift into a different gear when it came to not just, you know, math and sciences, but also the humanities. And we were constantly being pushed and challenged to to test ourselves when it came to these things and to really kind of push ourselves, uh, which I appreciated, you know, not being. This is something that I have struggled with when I think back on my High school education, I think that perhaps unique to our high school was the fact that we had, maybe this isn't unique to our our Waldorf High School, our math teachers were vastly overqualified. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think one of our math teachers had a double doctorate in rocket propulsion and physics and one of our other math teachers was teaching math at Berkeley by the time he was 21 years old. So, you and know, we have a common teacher with Matthew, Sir David that? Booth himself. No kidding. Okay, so yep. you know exactly. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Wildly overqualified Dr. Booth was. Oh, yes. He was teaching a bunch of ninth graders basic algebra. <laughs> exactly. And there, I, not, myself not being... The, very mathematically inclined uh, and, you know, historically really struggling with certain aspects of mathematics. Um, I think it was particularly tough for me to see a teacher become so frustrated with a high school class (laughs) because they couldn't grasp what to him is a very basic concept. Uh, But to us, especially to me, is something so alien that I had no idea how to even start kind of applying myself. Remember right. Frog that, Hop? I, of course I remember Frog Hop. Yeah, I, Frog Hop. I yeah. did not understand Frog Hop. I know it's quite basic, but I just I just remember it was like he was speaking a foreign language. And there were Frog lily Hop pads. Frog Hop was easier for me. See, if you, <laughs> like the whole game theory stuff, that was, that, was, that was easier for me to grasp. I think because it was a little more contextualized than some of the other mathematical mathematic principles we were learning. Yeah. Remember Uh, writing at 67 and a half degree angles for an entire main lesson book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Some, I mean, so there were, there were some things that were really tough for me when it Mm -hmm. came to math. And I, I don't want to blame our teachers because it was not their fault, but I do think that for me personally, the way that I needed to learn math was not the way it was being taught in our high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, a lot of our classmates really kind of shone in our math classes and mm-hmm. really 
uh, I think benefited from the teachers that we had because of how knowledgeable they were in just totally. every single field they were teaching when it came to math. Yeah. Uh, that was tough for me though. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On the flip side, yeah. I think, you know, being the humanities kind of guy that I was, that was something that I appreciated a lot more because we really were kind of studying more and more about the humanities that I think a lot of people don't necessarily start learning until college. Totally. Um, whether it was reading the transcendentalists or the romanticists and kind of going through these different stages of literature and writing, that was that was awesome for me. And I was I, I really did appreciate everything that we were learning when it came to that. So much of what you're saying is, I feel, is like an echo of what my own experience. I mean, we've shared common teachers at the Green Meadow Waldorf School and at Austin. Um, but yeah, I, I too remember being in high school and, and just loving every block I was in and wanted to be, you know, a, a, a scientist or a climatologist. And then I wanted to be a writer and then I wanted to be, a, you know, whatever the next main lesson block was, you know, it was like, oh, what, what, how could this speak to me? And I found that they always did speak to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so interesting you're talking about kind of the overqualification because I think that's something that Waldorf high schools faced from the beginning is how do we how do we prove to people that we are preparing kids who can go into college and not drown, right? Like how do we prove that what we're providing is actually academically rigorous? And I think every school approached that question in a different way. I think in Austin there was a real emphasis put on the the academic qualifications of the teachers with regards to their subject matter. And, you know, and I think that in, whereas in other places, people approach it in different ways, right? But I think that is a huge part of, you know, of some of the challenges that have faced Waldorf high schools is how do we, you know, so many people come to Waldorf schools in the early grades where it's like warm and soft and silks and- Take your time. Take your time and, you know, Plus is a plump gnome who <laughs> gathers jewels. And then it's like, is my kid ever going to learn calculus? And um, and I think it's a real, I kind of agree with you because there was this one math test, I think it was midway through sophomore year. And it kind of was this test that then catalyzed the division into level groups in math. And I I consider myself pretty similar to you, Zach, where I struggle with most math subjects. And for some reason on that test, I did extraordinarily well. And I landed in this like little dark library with some of the geniuses in our class with Dr. Booth talking about matrices. Oh, yeah. And he was matrices. like, and the number dribbles over and, and then it catalyzes this change. And after one day, I was like, I, I'm in the wrong place. I need to go. I'm not supposed to be here. But, you know, for those kids, for them to have like and almost all of them are in STEM now. Right. You know, like Jamie Quinn, all of these people have gone on to mathematical, you know, careers where they were having to use math and the sciences. But for those of us who just really needed things broken down, it sometimes was way over our heads. Yeah. And I, I suppose I don't mean this as a direct criticism of the Austin Waller School, but I think that that you know, something that qualifications do not a high school teacher make always, Indeed. right? 
indeed. It, it, it really does come down to not just how versed are you in the subject matter, but how good are you at teaching this subject matter to people who don't know it at all? Yes. Right. And so I think that that was that was one thing that really I'm not going to say put me off, but it was one thing that worried me about my college education. Yeah. Was truly the fact that the way that I was being taught math was not beneficial to me when it mm -hmm. came to learning the subject matter. Um, so that, yeah, that was one, I would say, negative aspect of my, yeah. my Waldorf education. Totally. And so when we were in high school, I think it was about 90 kids. Does that sound right? I think it was about 90. I think it was, yeah, I think it was close to 100. Yeah, so it was right around 100 kids. Yep. But still, compared to most people's experience, it was pretty small. Can you talk about, yeah. <laughs> can you talk about just kind of the community aspect of being in a small high school, you know, socially, as far as the activities, the athletics, right? You played basketball, you played on the uh, church men's league flag football team. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I remember nice. going to one no of those games. The Baptist League. The Baptist League. Uh. Yeah. I mean, can you just talk a little bit about the cultural experience? Because I think that's a big decision for a lot of people when deciding to whether or not to stay or go from a smaller school. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. I, I loved the, the small community of our, of our high school, you know, knowing at the very least, you know, every single person's name mm -hmm. that right. you were in high school with, uh, if not, you know, who their parents are and who their siblings are and what their story is. Right. Uh, I, I thought that was wonderful. Um, and that is one of the reasons why I ended up going to a smaller liberal arts college, because I wanted something similar to that in my higher education. Um, when it comes to sports, yeah, I mean, you're, you're not going to be setting any world records, probably, if you're on a Waldorf track and field team. You're not going <laughs> to be competing at a competitive state level necessarily if you're on a Waldorf basketball team or a Waldorf volleyball team. But, you know, there are always exceptions to that rule. I think that just the fact that our high school is so small kind of dictated um, the level of competition that you might get in a sports team. Mm -hmm. That being said, all credit to our administrators for hiring incredible coaches. Dude, and for yes. You know, I was lucky enough to have probably some of the best coaches that I could Im imagine having on the basketball team. Totally. Um, and not just as coaches, but as mentors for mm -hmm. me as a young man, I felt incredibly lucky to have the coaches that I did. Um, and that also speaks to the amount of care that our administrators put into making sure that our sports, our athletics program was as good as it could be. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So there that those were wonderful things that I think back on finally that I really do give credit to when it comes to the person I've become today, um, you know, and, and being able to maintain those relationships and kind of, you know, being taught, I think, to, to learn how to develop myself personally in a small community was also pretty important. You know, you're put into this world where, you see the same 
24 people <laughs> every single day yeah. for yeah. your entire young adult life. Mm-hmm. Um, really does teach, I think, a lot of valuable lessons about how to carry yourself in a small community and how to treat people that you love and maybe treat people that you don't love as much. Yep. <laughs> I think those were very, very important things to learn at that age, I think. Yeah, there was really no hiding. No, there's not. There are no secrets. Either. Yeah, no, no secrets, no hiding. It was all out there. I just have this oh. memory of like just the tapestry of people, like just these flashes of like um, Zach making pancakes on the griddle right outside the gym. What was his last name? Ossifort. Zach Ossifort. Oh, my gosh. Or, you know, like I, I just again, it's just all these like really like concrete visceral memories of just the tapestry of people that were that surrounded us and even if they weren't incredibly tight close friends just the the interactions that were so formative you know yeah. and um that you know as as freshmen we you know went on the camp out and interacted with seniors and and there's something similar in or there was something similar in Santa Fe with the very first camp camping trip of the year was the seniors and the ninth graders together. And, you know, just when you're in a small school, getting the connections across the grades, right. And sports helped that for me, I know. And, um, but also just like gym class, remember gym class, just what a trip that was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This like, undulating circle of people running at various speeds and then like someone always running the wrong way. I don't know. It was just, it's a warm memory in my heart. It is. It, it really is. I, I, I guess I, I have something that I, that I'd like to put forth, not really as a question, but more of just as a topic. Yeah. Uh, that, that kind of made me think of, and this is more of a a criticism of more of a public criticism of the Waller school, but also you know, something that I think a lot of us have experienced. And Matthew, I'd love for you to speak to this as well. But when you say tapestry of people, the, the one thing that I can't help but thinking is it is a tapestry of whiteness. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think something that really stood out to me during our education and still to this day stands out to me when I think about my education was just how white our school was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if you guys can speak to that as teachers and alumni as well. I, I agree. It's often an economic separation of different classes, but I have been in the in the Detroit Waldorf School, and they're pretty much very close to being almost all African-American. So it's not universal. It has to do with where the school's located, and generally, at least in the United States, you know, it, most of it is private, independent, and tuition-driven. But yeah. within the greater Waldorf movement worldwide, the majority of the schools are government-supported, and and um, and so there is much more diversity. I've been to Waldorf schools in Taiwan, in Europe, and um, they're n- nothing like the the American, the United States, the Waldorf schools in the United States. So it is part of the exciting aspect of the public charter Waldorf school movement is to get away from the uh, the the economic separation that that occurs because of because of a tuition driven model. 
So yeah. totally. Yeah. I think there's also, you know, like Rudolf Steiner is this figure in so many ways kind of like transcends the the bounds of time. I mean, maybe is a good way of, to, to put it that, you know, he has this whole kind of clairvoyant, esoteric image around him that people forget that he was like he was a man living in a time. And I think that when you look at so many of the curriculum indications, the examples that he was giving of what he was kind of guiding toward topics that were developmentally relevant, because that's one of the main pieces is we're going to teach kids this thing at this time to aid in their development. Right. And so, so many of those examples that he gave were examples from his world, which was in Germany in the 1920s. Yeah, and right. that's that's about as white as you can get, right? <laughs> it, Especially once you dive into some of those writings of his from there. I mean, there is kind of this polarization when it comes to a lot of Steiner's written work. Totally. On one hand, you have this kind of champion of social justice and social equality that um, really is evident in a lot of his written work. And on the other hand, you have this kind of very, very cringeworthy, outdated treatises on race and the way that he viewed kind of this instinctual learning versus intellectual learning between the races that yeah. I think has been a very hot topic for a lot of totally. critics of the system for a long time. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm wondering if you guys have ever faced direct criticism for that, if you've ever had to respond to criticism for that. Yes, we, I, I have, absolutely. And it's what's interesting about what Steiner, I, I feel, was saying for us teachers and having the freedom to craft our own lessons is, you know, so much, as Taylor was saying, so much of the fairy tales and stories and literature was pulled out of a Western European tradition. Mm -hmm. But, but... I've heard many stories of of a seventh grade teacher, for example, instead of teaching the Renaissance out of Italy, they teach about the Harlem Renaissance, right? And so like a Renaissance motif, it doesn't have to be anchored in a European story. It could be anchored wherever. And, and, and so I think that's what a lot of the current modern Waldorf school teachers are doing is yes. they're examining the literature, they're examining the lessons and saying, what is the point of the lesson? And can we bring this through with another story or another, you know, you know, assignment of some sort. I, I know Taylor, you can talk a little bit about your, your ninth grade, um, reading their novel that you brought. Yeah. I, um, when I was doing ninth grade English, I, I was trying to find, you know, I was, I was new. And so I was digging in like, what's the theme of this kind of novel block. And it was a lot about kind of this, an archetypal example of plot structure and character development and, you know, kind of just a, a vehicle to enter and, and, enter into talking about literature at the high school level. And there were very, there was very little justification for why what had traditionally been done was done, right? So for our class, we did A Tale of Two Cities. You could look at that as being, you know, for Zach and I in Austin. So you could look at that as being, you know, a piece of literature that's very celebrated, but kids now, it's harder for them to relate to that. So I found a book called Children of Blood and Bone, and it was about, um, it's a great book, right? Yeah. And 
what I loved about it is that so much of the fantasy, I mean, I just as an individual love reading fantasy, but so much of the fantasy that I have had exposed to me throughout my life is based on Western mythology coming out of Ireland. You know, you look at the the deity structures, you look at the magical system. So many of those have their root in Western paganism. And this was a story that was totally based on African mythology and Orishas. And so there was this huge then opening of supplemental stuff to bring into the classroom. And that's what I think is so exciting about people who are becoming Waldorf teachers now is that there's enough distance between the original impulse of the movement to where there seems to be more empowerment and freedom to say, what was Steiner actually saying? Like when Steiner was telling us to teach children the technology of our time so that they were not going to be tools of the technology, but that they could use the technology as tools, I don't think he wants us to be still teaching the steam engine as like the culmination of technology, right? right. You know, so like let's teach children the, you know, the psychology behind algorithm, right? The Like all of these different things that are driving the technology of our world so that, because that's the idea. Like we want people to be free. We right. want kids to come into the world in freedom and freedom through understanding right. is a big thing. And so I think that like, for me, I think there's a little bit of the, of a changing of the guard Yeah, that there were people who were trained by kind of these original wrote the books that the curriculum is based upon teachers and people rather than just verbatim regurgitating, they're kind of digging into, wait, but what's the actual message? What is the developmental impulse of this age? And is there anything more culturally relevant we can bring to them? Yeah. And I, that yeah. Is, and I think that that is also at odds with a lot of the Waldorf philosophy when it comes to the way that modern technology by and large is handled and treated by the Steiner education by Waldorf schools now. You know, obviously there is kind of a large emphasis placed on avoiding modern technology, especially at younger ages, which I think personally is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think it is important, especially in this day and age, for young children to develop and start to develop without yeah. the kind of bombardment of screens that you see a lot these days. Um, and the flip side of that is truly that we are living in the age of information and in the age of technology. And for better or for worse, you are going to need to learn how to use a lot of the technology that is at your fingertips to function in this society. So it is this fine line of how do you walk how do you straddle this, you know, mm -hmm. and how do you say these are things that you're going to need to learn how to do, whether it's typing or using Microsoft Excel yeah. in the professional world without emphasizing them during young development. Right. Exactly. Uh, and and I, that is. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, and I think the response to that from the Waldorf movement, maybe, you know, or, or, <laughs> or just from your own personal experience. Yeah, from experience. my own experience would be timing. It's all about yeah. timing. Like timing and when, when is that coming in? Because I vividly remember being an eighth grader with my mom setting up my Gmail account, having to sit on my hands because I knew intuitively what she needed to do next and the pain. And I, I had no experience with it at all. 
but I just knew. I was like, you gotta put the blue, the blue button, you know, and and uh, and so I was holding myself back, and and I do think that. You know, the first teacher that we've interviewed was an early childhood teacher, and she talked a lot about the importance of imagination in later intellectual and academic education. And that's one of the concerns about screens coming in so young is this kind of implanting of pictures rather than the organic birth of picture from the imagination. And... um you know, and so I think, and I mean, I see it with my son. I mean, he's not even two years old and he's drawn to my phone like a, you know, like a fly to a light. I mean, or a moth to a light fly. I don't know what I'm saying, but he's, he's drawn to it. There right. is a captivation there. And I, I feel almost this, this gut instinct of like, I need to protect him from this until he can understand how it works. Right. So it doesn't work on him, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. You, that also kind of leads me into another topic that I wanted to bring up with the two of you, which is this kind of perception versus reality of Waldorf schools from outsiders, quote unquote. And this came up in conversation with my fiance. <laughs> she she went to a friend school in, in Baltimore, um, which is not so different in terms of small community and alternative kind of, quote unquote, liberal arts education. Um, but it seems to me that no matter where you are in the United States, at least, if you have not attended a Waldorf school, you have the same perception of what Waldorf students are like, right? Whether it's the beanbag stuff, the smoothie stuff, the yoga mat stuff, there is this kind of universally accepted stereotype of a Waldorf student, which is that you're sitting around you're meditating, you're drinking smoothies, you're not really doing any school work. <laughs> now, obviously, the three of us can attest to the fact that, that is not necessarily an accurate representation of what our education was like. But my question to the two of you is, how the hell do we change this? <laughs> what is What exactly are our administrators and teachers and yeah. alumni doing? To change that perception other than saying no that's not what we did like there kind of seems to be this lack of progress when it comes to teaching people about Waldorf education who aren't directly involved in it totally yeah it's a very good question I mean I I, I honestly believe conversations like this that could other people could hear is is a good first step to to helping the situation it really comes down to a, a a personal connection to a waldorf teacher or someone getting their training so many times people learn about waldorf education through their network through their social network and it really depends on the quality of that connection what the impression is yeah. um so you know i my class my graduating class of 18 students we had Two of us, my, my classmate and I, both went to the same college. We both went to St. John's College in Santa Fe. And, you know, the way my classmate represented his Waldorf education and the way I represented my, my Waldorf education were two different things. And I would say that people who talked to my classmate got a different impression than when they talked to me because they would often tell me, wow, you seem, you know, really together and with it and, and, you know, like not so crazy as, you know, your classmate and, and, 
And it was like, no, that was just him as an individual. That, that's not reflective of a Waldorf education per se. The Waldorf education, in my view, just made us as individuals like, like more ourselves. More potent. Yeah. And so, you know, I think oftentimes you have these conversations with people who maybe not didn't even think about their Waldorf education at all or what it meant or why they did funny things or what was Eurythmy or any, you know, any of those questions. And, and then you, you get just a skewed picture. And I, it's just so funny that what, what, what we hear, you know, oh, yeah. do you sit on pillows in the classroom? No, we, I, we don't sit on pillows. Yeah. Like we sit at desks. Like it's, right. you know, I mean, the list goes on. And I think, it, it, I mean, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Taylor, sorry. No, I was just going to say, and I think one of the fascinating things about a Waldorf education is that it doesn't look the same throughout all 12 years or throughout all 14 years, right? If you include early childhood. And so someone who brushes up against a preschool classroom where there's circle and there are wooden toys and none of the toys look like toys and there's they're the eating millet and the dolls don't have faces. Right may make an assumption about what's happening at the high school level that is completely inaccurate. And I think that's what's so fascinating about what's done in the Waldorf school is that all of those early years are laying a foundation so that almost like the canvas is primed then for the more academic traditional learning to come in and you kind of do this first kind of swoosh through time and space and history and content in the grades and then in the high school, then you swoosh back again. And dive in even deeper and penetrate the curriculum even even deeper. And I mean, I would argue that a Waldorf high school education in many ways content or or just in on paper and in in format looks very similar. Right. Sure. Main lesson is long and you might have to make the pretty textbook. But as far as you're taking tests. Right. We wrote a shit ton of papers so many papers zach we wrote so many papers think about mr hines we wrote so many papers for mr hines yeah yeah so you know i think that the assumption a lot of times is based on an impression from a different part of this the the journey and the other piece i have is i think that people are really scared to talk about what waldorf schools are because it's not it, it, it you can't tie it up in bow in a bow right i think in the past a lot of times waldorf schools could say it's experiential education it's hands-on learning we're educating the whole human being well guess what now every single charter school is using those exact same words to talk about what they're doing and it's we're still doing something different and yet i think that there's a fear that if we say hey we view this human being as a spiritual being And we are aiming to educate this whole human being, including this spiritual component, and we're delivering a curriculum that is bringing content to the child at a developmentally appropriate age and and with appropriate methodology to meet them where they are in their development. Like, I mean, you're not going to get Joe Schmo off the street being like, that sounds like a pretty good school there. I, I think, you know, it's it's like this this fear. Give some credit to Joe Schmo, okay, Taylor. Maybe he I'm sorry. Would. <laughs> Definitely, Joe Schmo would be inspired. I, I I do see what you're saying, and I, I I agree with with most of it. I think that it struck me as funny that some of the same buzzwords I got used to hearing in Austin in middle school and high school from people who didn't attend the Waldorf school. Right. We're being thrown about by someone who was familiar with Waldorf, but an outsider in Baltimore. Yeah. And 
I, I do wonder how much of that can be attributed to some Waldorf schools or some Waldorf educators or some Waldorf students and families and some just different parts of the community leaning more into the esotericism of Steiner's philosophies or leaning more into the kind of anthroposophical practices yeah. of Steiner's and not emphasizing the actual practical education that they did receive mm-hmm. as right. much. Yeah, Because can... that really is the kind of dichotomy that I've found the most, which is, look, as much of this esotericism, as, as much of this kind of quote unquote mysticism that you want to lean into, you can. I'm, I'm not taking anything away from people who want to kind of follow more of Steiner's other practices. But the fact of the matter remains, we still got a great freaking education. Mm-hmm. And that necessarily talked about as much in my experience. It's true. And I think, sorry, I think the, the middle, the middle point oh. is, um, I think the middle point is the teacher, right? That the teacher in a Waldorf school is expected to be holding this full picture. And you're not coming into school as a seventh grader or as a fourth grader and having the teacher said, all right, get ready for your nine year change, right? It's something that the teacher is holding in their mind and in their kind of personal practice that then through their actions gets communicated to the kids in a practical education. But the te- there really is this expectation that for it to be a Waldorf education, that the teacher really does need to be dipping into some of the more anthroposophical elements of Steiner's work in order to then in practice bring bring a Waldorf education, right? Does that Right. I mean, I think that's kind of when the teachers talk about does is the teacher holding the class, right? Holding is a very generic term, but there's so much more to holding a class in terms of a teacher's, you know, personal meditative life, preparation, you know, maybe how much parent education is happening. Because honestly, as a teacher, you don't need to tell the parents or even the students what you're doing or why you're doing the lessons or what Steiner meant for this or that or what lecture you read or whatever. Because you're right, Zach, there is a practicality that, you know, the education is for anybody and anybody would benefit from it. And I think when parents, when, when community members look and say, what, what's happening here? Why is there such a deep connection? Why did the students love their teachers so much? How is this more than just a regular school? And it's like home almost, or, or you feel that deep connection with those people in the community, in the, in the school community. And that has to do with something deeper than just our public um, interactions and our public relationship. It has to do with the connection that's very hard to talk about. And that is an anthroposophical kind of the spiritual side. And, and you can really get lost in it and lead people astray when you start to talk about it. And a lot of teachers actually don't like to talk about yeah. it. Um, but I know, I know we, we want to bring it out on this podcast too. Like what are some of the verses? What are some of the exercises that teachers do? You know, so. Yeah. So just in the interest of time, I want to just touch into kind of your life after Waldorf. If you are you okay on time? 
Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Well, we didn't talk about senior projects. Should we? Talk oh, about oh, yes. Projects? What did you do for your senior project? Oh yeah, yeah. Senior <laughs> projects. Man, what a trip. I still have it on um, my shelf. I so for my senior project, I wrote and self-published a novel. Wow. Um, this was a. This was kind of the the culmination of. I uh, have one class project that we did. And I don't remember, maybe it was the transcendentalism block we had with Ms. Vera Heller, where I was reading a ton of Joyce and was kind of fascinated and um, really enamored with this kind of stream of consciousness style writing that the Joyce really popularized when he was publishing most of his work. Um, and I had done one exercise that our teacher had given us and she pulled me aside and was like, Hey, I think that this kind of deserves more. Mm -hmm. I think you should kind of chase this and see where it goes. And that, uh, led me to my senior project, which was basically creating a novel length stream of consciousness story <laughs> uh, that upon reading now makes zero fucking sense. And is, uh, Kind of this crazy, convoluted, fantastical yeah. um, Time. journey. Yeah, that this young, very Chris Nolan uh, yeah. journey that this that this protagonist, this young man, is taking um, during the moment of death, basically, where he is dying, and during that moment of death, he his brain kind of leads him on this maybe his brain, maybe his spirit, something we don't really know, kind of leads him on this this journey that in real time is 149 seconds, but in for him feels like months and months. Um, so that <laughs> that was my senior project. Nice. We, we really had in Austin at that time a, a culture of extreme excellence around senior projects, right? I, I felt like the bar was intimidatingly high when we were coming into our senior projects. How do you remember, what do you remember the feeling being around embarking on that? Gosh, I, I feel like we had a vast range of senior projects where it seemed like sometimes the bar was intimidatingly high. <laughs> sometimes it didn't. Um, yes. So, yes. Yeah. I mean, certainly there was a culture of, I don't want to say one upmanship, but yeah, there was this kind of, you know, how do you do something that's going to blow people out of the water? Totally. And not necessarily how do you do something that just feels right to do that you want to do and that you want to chase. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that I was influenced by that. Um, I hope other people weren't influenced by that. But yeah, the, the whole senior project concept, uh, I love. Yeah. I, I really, really love. And I thought that that was one of the more special things that I got to do. Totally. I, I'm sorry. Now that you said that, I have one more high school question, which is one of the most, I mean, this has nothing to do with having a Waldorf education, just disclaimer, but part of our experience that to me was the most informative was the fact that throughout all of high school, there was a group who went so hard at recess that we would show up <laughs> drenched in sweat to our next class. And I didn't realize that that was unique, that most high school students don't just like 
punish their bodies with like fearsome dodgeball or <laughs> or like just play. Is, is that unique? I, I didn't realize that was unique. Either. It, it's pretty unique. I don't know. I mean, at, at our school, we had f- like six kids who would play spike ball and then everyone else would just kind of lump around. But oh, no. there was no, no lumping. No. I Yeah. Recess in high school was... Uh, a time to do almost a CrossFit style workout <laughs> or activity where, yeah, if if you're not totally wearing yourself out, then you're kind of messing up. Basically. Yeah. That, that was my understanding of high school. <laughs> this is an opportunity to play a one hour game of basketball that is at 100% the level you would play during a varsity game. Yes, it was it was so not casual. I think that's what strikes me. It's like it was the absolute opposite of nonchalant. <laughs> like it was just yeah. taken yeah. so seriously. I mean, I just I remember those like little foam balls and I just remember Travis throwing it and, and like the ball just in midair like you yeah. know and it, it and <laughs> then you know someone unsuspecting would be trying to walk by and and hey, you're in the way. You get nailed in the head. You know, sucks to be you. You were in the way, right? But I thought that was just such a like a fun thing when I think about how disconnected so many young people are from their physical bodies now. And, you know, we had all these conversations about phones and do you let them have their phones and phones during lunch? And and just that was a constant give and take in our experience or in my experience of us being high school teachers. And I just love the fact that we existed in this perfect culture blip of time where there was never i mean it was just so vigorous and it was like <laughs> yeah, really. hold, hold on, hold on yeah. no you're good i need to close this door um yeah i i could not agree more and you know i part of me wants to say that that is maybe indicative of a time when smartphones were still on the rise when it comes to popularity. And, you know, we truly were this bridge generation of technology. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that that gives us enough credit, to be <laughs> honest. Right. Yeah. I really do think that, you know, even if all of us had owned an iPhone, we would still be out there playing Bismarck for an hour. <laughs> yeah. And, like, you know, I, one of my favorite memories of high school recess was uh, Gabe's teaching me Brazilian jiu-jitsu. <laughs> spending an hour grappling with someone who weighed 60 pounds more than I did. So both of us were totally red-faced and sweating and our shirts were torn or stretched. Yeah. And that was kind of like hugging and patting each other on the back and going to Spanish. Right? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it, it, it is kind of, I, I don't necessarily, like, like you said, I, I wouldn't have guessed that that was unique to us. Um, but that, that was something that was very characteristic of our time in high school. Yeah. And I mean, I think about, you know, for myself as an athlete, it was like this passive training. <laughs> Where it's like, I didn't have to, you know, go home and do a rigorous workout because I already ran around for an hour and got beat to a pulp, you know, playing Bismarck. And, um, you know, and I think about like us shooting threes all during recess and just for myself as a basketball player, just that culture of movement and activity that we had was so it, it was something so special that I didn't recognize for what it was at the time. You know, and um, and then as like as a coach later on, it was like, 
do you all like to play sport in your free time? Maybe if you play sports, it might help. I don't know, you know, but it was cause, because for me, it was so obvious that that there was such joy and such community that we found with each other through just, you know, yeah. through yeah. that activity. So I, I, I know that we're timing is, is being stretched here. I, I do have one more question for you guys. Absolutely. You know, I know that um, there are, I have brought up a couple of things that are public criticisms of, of the Waldorf education. Um, and I think you guys have responded to them extraordinarily well. My question to you is besides this kind of issue of diversity or public funding, you know, um, besides this issue of public perception and this kind of mystical aspect of the Waldorf education, are there public criticisms that you guys have been forced to address? And are there other criticisms that, that the two of you have been put in a position to confront um, during your time as teachers or during your time as alumnus that you would like to bring up now? Hmm. Do you have one? I have one. Yeah, I think I have one, but you yeah, can go first. Either way. Um, you know, I, I think talking about criticisms that I've personally faced, it's very hard to legitimize, 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 yeah, legitimize all the preparatory work that teachers do. So, you know, it's, the criticism is, oh, it's a woo-woo school. Like you, you talk a big game. Do you actually deliver? Uh, often, graduate, you know, parents of graduates see, oh, like the the parents who've actually seen their children go through the whole curriculum. They're like, yeah, there, there is something to back up this education. I see it now. I didn't see it before. I see it now. My own father didn't see it in the early grades. But by the time I graduated, he said, oh, I understand what Waldorf education is about, you know. But it's usually in hindsight. So the criticism is often a public criticism is how do you know that what you're saying you're doing is actually having that effect? Mm. How do you know that, you know, the lectures that you read or the exercises that you do, that I do as a teacher, how do you know that that's having the effect that you're thinking it's having and it's not something else? And it's a very, it's a criticism that's, I don't know how to meet except to say that uh, over 18 years of teaching Algebra 1, I, I do, you know, it's not actually the Algebra 1 lesson that I, that's getting across. It's that one-to-one -one human relationship that, that is more important than the fact of, is my student actually factoring the numbers correctly or, you know, whatever the, the correct lesson is. I in my teaching career, it's always the, the strength of my inner work has shown through the strength of the relationships I've had with my students. And you can't quantify that, right? It's not like a, a public school where then there's some metric that then I can just check off and say, see, I did my preparation. But, but you can tell when teachers don't do the preparation mm -hmm. and you can tell when they do. And it, it has to do with how they're standing in the class, how the students interact with them, if there's respect and love there, or if you're just kind of, the class is just ripping them a new one. Um, and, and it even comes down to the fact of how you hold the class, how you discipline the class, how you ask someone to stop talking. I often 
try not to say, hey, Jimmy, you know, stop talking. I just, I just know what's going on and I walk over and I stand next to that person until they get the point like, mm, maybe I should be doing something else, right? So it's, it's kind of this, it's, an, it's so hard to talk about one's inner life in a public sphere, but the criticism of, you know, are you really truly competent as you proclaim, that's often what I've faced. Interesting. Um, I think mine has more to do with the the changing landscape of who children are now, and um, you know the the conversation around meeting kids as they are now, and whether that is you know, and this is a whole other realm of diversity is um, intellectual diversity and you know, behavioral diversity and um, all the different manifestations of that, whether it is, you know, autism or learning differences or other, you know, other cognitive related, you know, differences that students may have. And, you know, the, I think at the high school level, we see a little bit more of the practical, you know, my, my child has dyslexia and they are struggling reading and writing papers, right? We see it a lot more cut and dry than maybe in the lower grades where those things are beginning to show. And, um, and I think this is, this is somewhere where I kind of, I, I personally have done a lot of research and I, I have a hunch, but I don't yet have concrete proof. I don't yet have 18 years of teaching experience to back my, my hunch, I, I really believe that because of the independence and freedom that we have as Waldorf teachers to deliver whatever is right for the students in front of us, I think we actually, in our current time, meeting the kids who are coming into classrooms right now, I think we are doing children a disservice by focusing so much time on focused academic instruction toward the outcome of college preparation. I think that because we have all of this content, all of these lectures from Steiner giving us so many tools for how to meet human beings, that we have all these tools at our disposal of how to kind of better mold these whole human beings so that that time in the classroom of focused academic instruction could be more productive, right? And I think that what I have experienced is there's so much emphasis on how do we how do we prove our validity as as teachers and as an institution to parents who are skeptical of what is this? What's my child going to get here? Right. Is this for real? Are they going to be educated in a way that they can go on to a higher education institution and thrive? That there's so much emphasis on proving those people wrong that I think we actually are missing an opportunity to really educate the kids of now. Right. And, and meet their full spectrum of needs and and maybe lean in more to educating the whole human being in a way that's actually going to prepare young people for the world. Because I, I mean, like I always use the example of people in my community from who I know, how many people have left intellectual pursuits to do something with their hands, right? How many people have, you know, gone through higher education invested a lot of money and time into that and then ultimately said, you know what, what actually speaks to me is working with my body. 
you know, my own husband has a business degree and was all primed to go work at Kohl's Corporate up in Minnesota. And he found landscaping and finds such incredible joy and strength and meaning, deeper meaning in that in a way that is so good for his entire well-being. And I really wonder if if we if we as as a Wald, as Waldorf teachers, especially Waldorf high school teachers, have an opportunity to plant more seeds to cultivate those kinds of maybe, quote, vocational pursuits mm-hmm. earlier on rather than and, and and give those kids who struggle in the classroom validity. Right? right. I think about a kid who goes to school every day in high school and it's just a battle. Every single class, the words, the numbers, it's all moving around in their head. It's like, how do you feel coming out of that? Do you feel like you have a gift to offer the world? Do you feel like the world wants you, <laughs> right? And I, I think that maybe Waldorf high schools especially have a chance to do something different. And I think that it, it'll take a lot of courage to do that. But um, that's something that I, I feel like as an English teacher, even just in my you know, five years of teaching, I had so many conversations with families who were, you know, how do I help my kid survive high school English, right? And, um, and yeah, so that's kind of a, a long-winded explanation, but that's something that just for me personally feels very... Yeah. That, I mean, that right there is the title of the marketing campaign that Waldorf needs to start pushing. <laughs> and this, this goes back to exactly what we were talking about earlier, which is this kind of perception versus reality when it comes to both of what you guys just touched on kind of speaks to this perception versus reality when it comes to how people perceive the Waldorf education and what they think is going on versus what is actually happening. Yeah. And I will echo again, there doesn't seem to be, at least for now, in my experience, a lot of that um, teaching when it comes to how do we teach people in simple terms? How do we teach people in terms based in things that they understand outside <laughs> yeah. of Steiner's teaching, what is happening, that exactly what you just said, Taylor, I think is is really what we need to impress upon the general populace, which yeah. is that we're just teaching kids to not just survive, but we're teaching them how to survive creatively yeah. and how to show that even if they're not academically minded compared to some of their classmates, they still have just as much to offer the world as the rest of their classmates do. And that is what is lacking in this perception of the Waldorf education, unfortunately. Yeah, 100%. So just to just to, to kind of conclude, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? You're an independent filmmaker. You've done various projects. Could you talk a little bit? I, I would especially love to hear just a... Um, a blurb about what you're doing or what you did working with um, Payson McKelvin, who's a professional mountain biker, bike rider, professional. Yeah. Mm. yeah sure. We've been talking, we've been talking for a long time. <laughs> um, no, yeah, but, but, uh, but Payson McKelvin, who was a, a year behind us at the Austin Waldorf school. So another alum, I know you've done work with him. I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about um, your professional pursuits right now. <laughs> Yeah, so I, upon graduating from the Austin Waldorf School, um, for, this is a whole nother thing to talk about, but I, I ended up taking a gap year. So I mm-hmm. 
uh, took a gap year before college, spent some time traveling, um, and then attended Kenyon College in Ohio. Um, with going into my college education, I was convinced that I was going to be an English major, that I was going to go into academia, that I wanted to write and I wanted to teach. Um, you were going to have a corduroy and, blazer and a sweater vest, the whole thing. Yep. I was going to be a scarf guy. <laughs> Big a, scarf horn, guy. <laughs> horn rimmed glasses and just <laughs> lean into that. Uh, probably somewhere in New England. But it took about a semester for me to realize that that is not what I wanted to do um, and that I wanted to pursue film. So this, this is going to be a long-winded explanation of, of what no, I'm doing. No, you're great. You're great. So, so bear with me here. I'm really starting <laughs> from the beginning. Uh, so I graduated with a film degree and at the behest of my mentors and my professors moved to Los Angeles uh, because what I was told at the time, which I think by and large was true, I think it not necessarily was true for everyone, but if you wanted to work in the film industry and if you wanted to be successful in the film industry, you really had to pick Los Angeles or New York and you had to pick one of two or three different ways to go about starting your career. Uh, the way that I picked was working at a talent agency, um, starting in the mailroom of a talent <laughs> agency and working my way up to the position of agent. Um, it was terrible and I hated it. Yeah. And it was, you know, I, I did learn a lot about myself and I learned a lot about the industry and I learned a lot about how much I resented that part of the industry and that part of myself that was doing this. So I moved to Colorado with two of my best friends and we started our own production company. Um, and this was in 2017, 2018, sorry, 2018, um, beginning of 2018. And we kind of just started doing stuff. My two partners, Cody and Mick, had while I was in LA, they had already kind of started laying the groundwork for this production company and had already been involved with a couple of commercials that they had produced and edited. And it was a very natural jump for me to be like, okay, I'm pulling the parachute. We've talked about doing this. Let's all end up in the same place and do this together. Um, so that's what we did. We did that pretty much from 2018 till the end of last year. Um, as a company and as people living together in Denver. Now, um, we are still doing that. You know, we're still doing a lot of independent production together. Like I alluded to earlier, it's tougher for us to do things together because one of my partners, Cody, has a new baby. Um, he moved to Austin with his wife before they had their baby to be closer to family. My other partner, Mick, uh, is exploring other passions and dreams of his <laughs> in the world of professional golf, which is incredibly exciting. And he's doing a wonderful job. He's already caddied for someone on the U.S. Amateur Tour um, and is just absolutely crushing it. Um, and I am back to being a freelancer in Denver. So what that looks like for me is I'm still doing more or less everything I was doing before. And the project that you're talking about, yes, was with 
um, Payson McKelvin, a, a professional athlete and good friend of ours who graduated uh, a year after us. And so we had done some work with him previously. And this was this project that I was lucky enough to be on the phone with him when he was kind of like in the genesis of this project um, was the follow-up to a project he did in Iceland where he rode his bike across island, across the island of Iceland. So tip to tip of Iceland, basically. And in doing that, realized that he wanted to do other things like that. And he is kind of in this weird crossroads of his career where he is very much still racing and doing an incredible job of racing and is uh, an amazing athlete, a very well-regarded athlete. Um, and is finding that he wants to do more of these adventure rides that don't necessarily help his career as an athlete who races mostly to yeah. get sponsorships, get money. Right. So anyway, after he did the crossing Iceland project, he decided that he wanted to do another big crossing and he picked Tasmania. Um, so I flew out with him to Tasmania and directed and produced a short film about him riding from coast to coast in Tasmania in one push. So I think it was, we ended up at around 32 hours. Wow. 380 plus mile wow. ride uh, from one coast to the other and produced a film about it. So it was, that's, that's what I've been doing this past year and now still very much in this world and still doing similar work and looking for similar work. Um, so that's, that's where I'm at. That's amazing. Is, is the film out that you've done? It is. Yes. What, what's it's, its name? Uh, it is called Crossing Tasmania. Um, you can find it. It's on YouTube. It's on it. More recently, it was exclusively licensed by Red Bull TV. So it's on the Red Bull TV website um, and you can find it online. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, the fact that your professional life has continued to overlap with Cody, who was our classmate in the class of 2010, and then Payson, um, you know, who was a year behind us. I mean, I remember he was this super athletic kid in high school who never played any sports because he was always riding his bike, you know, and it was yeah. kind of like this yeah. thing he did behind the scenes. And the word was he was really good. And then at some point he, you know, grew a mustache and developed cycling superpowers and Payson has yeah. had a really successful the word, the career. Word is still that he's really good, turns out. He's, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's, he's killing it. He's, he's doing very, very well for himself. And he's, his career has been very fun to follow and very fun to watch. And uh, yeah, he's, in, he's, in, he's a machine, man. This, this guy is just a pretty inspiring dude to watch. Totally. Well, Zach, this has been super magical man i yeah. i think i expected you to come at us with questions of like why did we do eurythmy and you know like what was the you know why what was michaelmas about but the questions you brought were incredible and i i can't wait for you know for others to reap the fruits of the conversation that you really catalyzed so thank you thank you thank you guys for having me on this podcast honestly i love talking about the waldorf education i love you know, kind of addressing these issues. Uh, as you guys might have guessed, I have come across a lot of criticism myself about the Waldorf school system. And it is, it is 
I think, important for us to talk about these things and mm -hmm. to address them head on and kind of let people know what our experiences were. So thank you for indulging me. I yeah. appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Would you like to be a sponsor on Hard Beeswax? Email us, hardbeeswax at gmail.com. That concludes another episode of Hard Beeswax. Thanks for listening. For episodes and more, please visit our website, hardbeeswax.transistor.fm.